0: 20 Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast Supporter feature linked in the episode notes or by going to patreoncom 20 History. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved
1: one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: are back with another 20-minute history bonus bite. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David A. Bradbury, and for those who do, hi. Good seeing you. I have a real treat to share with everyone today, as I recently sat down for a recorded conversation with a wonderful and insightful historian, the one and only William Deverell. Professor Deverell has authored several articles, as well as a recent book, on the life and death of Kathy Fiscus. Now that's a name which should ring a bell to listeners of this show, as little Kathy was the focal point of her very own episode late in our last season. So naturally, after reading Professor Deverell's book for myself, I could think of no better way to follow up on this fascinating story than by inviting him to chat. Fortunately for me, he graciously accepted. Now, before we get started here, please note that he and I will be skipping over a lot of the basic details of Kathy's accident in order to dive straight into an analysis of the events at hand. So if, for whatever reason, you don't know much about this history or just need a refresher, feel free to check out our aforementioned episode to get the scoop. Link in the description. Or better yet, seek out some of the professor's works on it. Many of his articles are indexed on Google, and best of all, they're free to access. All right. Without any further ado, I'm proud to present a conversation with Professor William Deverell. Okay, he is a professor of history at the University of Southern California, as well as the director of the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West. And his new book, Kathy Fiscus A Tragedy That Transfixed the Nation, is out now. Please welcome Professor William Deverell to the show. Professor, thank you so much for being with me today. Welcome to 20 Minute History.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for
0: having me, David. Oh, of course. Pleasure's all mine. So uh, let's dive straight into the questions that we have for you here. As your titles would suggest, you have an expertise in the history of California and specifically on the details of the tragedy that surrounds Kathy Fiscus. And that is to such an extent that when I, speaking from personal experience, was writing my own episode for this podcast on Kathy your name was everywhere to be found, either on source material that you had written or on source material that explicitly cited and mentioned you. I think it's safe to say that you've devoted a fair amount of of your time and research into this event. And so I'm very, very humbled and happy to be able to talk about it with you today. But sort of as an introduction to our listeners, I'm hoping that maybe you can start us off by telling us a little bit about what specifically has captivated you about this story, right? Why? Why have you given it so much of your attention?
1: It's a very good question. I'm not sure I can completely answer it. Uh, If you do (laughs) what I do, which is to study the 19th and 20th century American West, you encounter this case or this episode because it was extraordinarily well known in the spring of 1949. So I knew about it. Uh, And it's also very important to the history of American and worldwide media. So I knew the superficial uh, telling of the story, but then over the course of the past decade or 12 years or so, I became increasingly fixated on the event, partly because I live very close to where it happened. I can bicycle or walk over there easily. I've taken my children over there. Partly I think as well, because I was attracted to the, the recentness of the event. It really isn't that long ago, 72 years or so. And it felt like it was still with us, and I think it very much is. And then, of course, I think the fact that I'm a father uh, put me into a particular role here as a scholar and a father. And for reasons that are not entirely certain, this project captivated my head and my heart.
0: Right. And even if they're not certain, I think that our listeners can empathize with them. You tell this really, really Captivating story in your book. I believe it's in the prologue that you write for it about having your daughter draw a circle on a sheet of paper that is the width of the Johnson Well that Kathy Fiscus fell into, and I would guess that that is a, a common attractor for a lot of people. You know, whether we have children ourselves or we know people that have children, we know young kids. It's impossible, in a sense, not to be captivated by this story and to want to get to know the people in it better so with that I guess that my follow-up question for that is given this personal connection did you find the experience of writing this book any different from writing previous works that you've done because this isn't your first book correct correct
1: it was different it was qualitatively different it was harder in part because I think the proximity of the event in time and place was a challenge for me. Uh, It sounds ironic, but I think that was made it harder. And I also, um, the book grabbed hold of me in ways that previous books have not, probably in part because there's still plenty of people around who knew the event firsthand. There are family members that that I interviewed for the book. And so It became a project that, unlike my earlier projects, which can be kind of um, assigned to a deeper past, this one was very close, and I wanted to get it right.
0: You, I don't know if hesitated is the right word. Perhaps it's more accurate to say that you were sitting on this book for a while. You had been, you describe in it interactions that you had with friends and fellow colleagues about them encouraging you to write it. It just sounds like you'd been sitting on it for quite some time. Is that, is that fair to say? Sitting
1: on it or something. I don't quite know what the, what the metaphor would be. Um, And I did have friends who encouraged me to finish it both because they wanted it to come out, but also I think they were tired of me talking about it. The project, (laughs) the project began actually in my head as a play. I wanted Mm. to write a play. Um, And I fairly quickly realized that I don't have those skills. What I can do is construct narrative in words uh, and tell a story from beginning to end in some fashion and put a lot of footnotes in there. So I have the scholar's skills, but I don't have a playwright's skills. And so it moved towards what it became. And in doing so over the course of that decade or longer, the book changed shape, it changed size. Uh, It used to be probably twice as long as it is now. And I was served by brilliant editorial help at the press that pared it down, pared it down and pared it down. So uh, insofar as the book is readable and moves along at that pace and a chapter ends with some kind of uh, suspense, that's thanks to my editor.
0: Well, I can certainly say that the book has a great flow to it. Um, It definitely reads like a play. I mean, in a certain way. And I come back to this metaphor a lot being an actor myself, but this is a kind of story I think that if you walked up to a film studio, had it not been an actual historical event, but if you walked up to a film producer and said, this is the story that I'm trying to tell, it might not be believable. It would be so packed with drama and suspense that one would think that at least someone out there would be able to say, okay, well, okay, come on. An audience isn't going to be, be able to suspend their disbelief that much. But, um, speaking as an actor, whether you end up writing it or somebody else, I do hope that that play gets written at some point. I think it would be fairly entertaining. So with that, out of the way let's um move on to the meat of our conversation today. I want to talk about the actual tragedy that occurred and the rescue that took place. And, To sort of start us off with this conversation, there is, I guess you could say, an elephant in the room surrounding the just massive amount of attention that Kathy's accident garnered. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that at this point, hundreds of thousands of people and possibly even more people than that have encountered this story in one way or another of a three-year-old girl that fell down a well. In itself, from a cosmic standpoint, that's not such a big event, and yet it grew into what it is today. If you had to speculate, why do you think it became such a historic moment for Los Angeles and, I guess, to a lesser extent, the country and the world? Good question.
1: I think part of it is the fact that there's something primal in our fear and anxiety about people trapped below the surface of the earth and that was certainly the case here add to that the vulnerability of a small child she's only three years old add to that the fact that she's born in 1946 so she is the baby boom in a lot of ways and there was a a notion that the country was reopening and repairing itself after more than a decade's worth of depression and war. And then this happens, in the place that was enshrined in American culture as the place where the post-war would have its largest fluorescence, Southern California. And then this tragedy happens. And then there's the more obvious, I think, touchstone of the fascination, which is that she was alive. She was trapped below the earth, very far down below it. And she was crying and she was alive. And so people were anxious, tearful and afraid together. And then there's television. This was filmed, this rescue attempt and it revolutionized American media. So the, the impact and the anxiety and the fearfulness spread through media and the airwaves and through the culture. And I think it's still reverberating, frankly.
0: And I certainly agree with that. You, at the end of your book, bring together all of these various examples of ways in which the Kathy Fiscus tragedy continues to show up in our media in ways that a lot of people I don't think would realize. For me personally, for example, I had never realized that the old sort of joke about what's that Lassie Timmy fell down a well. I had no idea, being a person of my generation, that that was not an actual episode of Lassie, but which was, in fact, inspired by the Kathy Fiscus events. So having that connection to it without even realizing that I had that connection to it, I think speaks to the fact that this continues to reverberate today. And we'll get to the media aspect of it in a second. But the sense that I'm getting from you is that these are all of these different factors unifying to create something that is not only perfect television, but is the perfect storm, I guess, in a, in a way to just attract all of these people to it. Speaking of those people, I suppose there are too many characters in this story to talk about them all individually. So with the men that worked on this rescue... I don't think there's any other word to describe them other than just miraculous, stupendous, some other (laughs) synonym insert there. I think we've already touched on it a little bit, but in your research, did you find any sort of recurring motivations for why these brave, bold men would put their lives and limbs at risk for a girl that they had not previously known in any substantive sense?
1: So I agree with you about your adjectives of the events or uh, the men that attempted the rescue they're they're heroic there is a common thread many of them are fathers of young children and so that certainly is part of the motivation and they they said as much at the site when they were interviewed there's also the solidarity of work these are men who many of them knew one another through their work lives which were tough construction and ditch digging jobs. And so I think there's probably the community of spirit there that if my buddy is gonna put his life at risk to try to rescue this little girl, I better do the same. And they do, so there's a kind of foxhole mentality here. And of course, many of these guys had been veterans in the Second World War. So they're drawn together by the urgency and also by their skill, they're good at it. And several of them, one, one in which I interviewed Um, he had five children at home and he was 25 years old. So he knew toddlers, he knew infants, he knew children, and he makes himself available at the scene.
0: So sort of a weird follow-up question to that and going back for a second to the idea that you had raised in response to the last question, which was the fact that we knew Kathy Fiscus was alive. I assume that that fact, that knowledge was widely spread. Otherwise it, they wouldn't have been trying so hard to rescue her. What, but was, I mean, was her res- were, were her responses known? Cause she was actually talking to her mother before the actual rescue went into full effect. Is that right?
1: Yes. Um, the people know it because they can hear her. Um, and the way I think the press, um, Sanitize isn't quite the right word. Um, The press refers to her as speaking with her mother from down below. Her mother asks her, are you standing up, Cassie? Are you sitting down, Cassie? And she responds. The press refers to her as crying. But eyewitnesses as well in the early moments or hours of the rescue attempt say that she's screaming. And so Mm -hmm. I think people can hear her.
0: Do we have a sense of when she stopped? crying because at a certain point she went silent correct
1: yes she goes silent within about two hours of tumbling down that well perhaps a little bit less than that and the reason for that is said to be by the physicians on site is that she was she'd cried herself to sleep and that she was just so terrified and it's dark down there that she nodded off and so that's a you know that's a wishful view of the event uh, and it turns out to be false.
0: Right, because eventually the, I don't know if it was the autopsy report or speculation after the fact that had said that at some point on Friday evening after she had fallen down into the well, even before we get into the hours of Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, she passed away or at least that's what we think. Obviously you admit in your book that we can't know.
1: Correct. We can't know. The autopsy records are, uh, far as I can tell, not around any longer. I've looked, looked and looked for them. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably correct, is that she died not terribly long after falling in. Uh, and how she died became uh, a point of some speculation and mystery as well.
0: I now want to move on to another main character in Kathy's rescue story, Right. We've talked about the men who risked their lives to save her, many of them fathers and work friends. Now we have to talk about the media that covered the event. One of the facts that you note in your book is that this is not the first live on site news broadcast in history. I believe the first one of those had happened some years earlier, if I remember correctly, perhaps even pre-war period, but it was sufficiently ambitious, I think you would agree, to completely change the media landscape as we know it. And so what I'd love to do is talk with you a little bit about what immediate changes we can see to the television landscape after the Kathy Fiscus event, and then maybe Fast forward to today and ask you if we can see any of those changes still reverberating around, and if so, where?
1: The immediacy of change because of this event is that it proves an experiment of live remote television news broadcasting can work. So in other words, when the television stations roll their vans out to the site in tiny San Marino on Saturday morning to film this rescue attempt, most, if not all of them are certain it won't work. Not the rescue, but the filming, because they view the impossibility of filming a remote broadcast as uh, insurmountable, a challenge. But in fact, it does work. They get to aim their cameras at a newly installed transmission tower just north of them on top of our Mount Wilson down here, and the live broadcast succeeds. And it succeeds for greater than 24 hours, even though a number of them are convinced their equipment will melt. And that success proves a technological point, but it also proved that there was a, an audience that was hungry for breaking news and would consume it. And so the proof of that test changes the ability of television stations to broadcast news from remote breaking news scenarios to living rooms all over the country, increasingly, increasingly, increasingly. And in many respects, our, what our attachment to remote television broadcasting, which is done at the drop of a hat now, just take those vans out there and get those cameras rolling. It dates to this event, there's no doubt in my mind.
0: This conversation will resume after a quick word from one of our partner podcasts. Stay tuned.
1: Hi, I'm Fearful Jesuit, host of The Paranoid Strain, a show that explains conspiracy theories to normal people. Every episode is carefully researched, fully scripted, and incorporates interviews, audio clips, original music, and a bunch of
0: nonsense to explain the history, impact, and bizarre beliefs related to one conspiracy topic at a time. We're doing an extensive series on secret societies, you know, the Knights Templar,
1: the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and we'd love to have you along for the ride. New episodes
0: drop every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Links to support the paranoid strain are in the description. And now back to the interview.
1: The event itself with all the chaos and all the crowds, it's a spectacle. There's no question. Now it's a spectacle built of heroism and built of selfless attempts to save the life of of a little girl, but it's a spectacle nonetheless. It's circus like so. Do we also date our fetish attachment to spectacular moments in media now that flit across our screens and our eyeballs to this event? Probably.
0: I think that's a really interesting thought because all the while researching this tragedy, there was a certain irony that continued to pop up in my own head, which is the fact that I was simultaneously wishing that this coverage had not happened while also being thankful that it did. This spectacle of which you refer is exploitative in some sense. I mean, I want to talk about David and Alice Fiscus in 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 a little bit more detail a little bit later in our discussion but one of the things on which you touch in the book is that even after this event alice fiscus either metaphorically or actually physically keeps getting a microphone shoved in her face asking for her reaction asking what she thinks when what you would hope from a humanistic standpoint is that she would be allowed as a mother would want to do during this time, to grieve, to process, to take it all in. And that's where I suppose I get the sense of, I'm glad that this event was immortalized for posterity. And yet from an interpersonal perspective, I feel very, very deeply for everybody involved. And again, I wanna get into that in just a second. Uh, I do want to spend a little bit more time on the media because I am personally curious about how this broadcast even happened. Now we talk a lot about KTLA in the the book, even though KTTV was also there, so there were two competing news stations on the ground. How did this twenty four hour broadcast? work because there was sort of like a trade-off between Bill Welsh and Stan Chambers going on. What else was at play here that you can tell?
1: Well, in, in large measure, because it's so it's just brand spanking new to try to think about doing this. They're making it up as they go along. They're interviewing people at the scene, mostly the workers. I don't think they interview the crowd very much because the crowd is pushed back from the rescue site. But the truth is we don't know because the television broadcasts have disappeared in the ether of the airwaves and they're not to be found as far as i can tell so in other words the tv broadcasts were not filmed which would have created what are called kinescopes and then we could look at them but they don't exist so they were a little confused they they talked to their producer and say like what should we do for all this many hours and the producer of the uh, KTLA station said, more or less, follow each other's leads, chat, talk to people, look at the camera. Bill Welsh is a a noted sportscaster already, so he's used to live action, um, which you have. But the the other irony is that fairly quickly, all the action is below the earth because they're down there digging. And so the television cameras are filming the the mouth of the well, but the activity is down below. So there's a certain banality to what they're filming as well, I suspect. But everyone's on pins and needles in thinking she's going to pop out of there. They're going to get her and bring her out. So the cameras are trained on the holes they dig in false hopes that she'll be rescued.
0: And one can only wonder why, in a sense, people were on pins and needles watching this. I mean, obviously, there is the element that. There is a little girl. She's trapped underneath the earth. But that banality, one would think, would not make for very good television. I suppose perhaps that is my own reaction coming from a very, very overly edited and dramatic, suspenseful, prepared, staged atmosphere of television as we see it today, where almost nothing happens by accident and improv. And making it up as you go along is gone with the wind, but it is captivating in and of itself that this footage should be so captivating for people that they should watch it for the more than 24 hours that it is on, wouldn't you say? Yes,
1: although I think the media also fills in some of that banality, I suppose, by fairly quickly quickly identifying and ascribing characteristics to the workers themselves. So the media begins to, print media, radio media, television media, begin to um, kind of get to know these workers. Now, they don't really get to know them, but they each have a story that's very fairly quickly captured by the media. So people know these workers by their first names, and they know what they look like. And they know that this one had served in the Marine Corps in the Second World War. And this one was part of a sewage contracting business in the San Gabriel Valley. And so that fills in some of the narrative gaps of what's going on below the earth. So as the workers emerge from the holes to take a break or get a bite to eat or a cup of coffee, the newscasters say, you know, up comes Herb or Clyde or Whitey. And so people get to know those
0: figures. Now, these kinescopes do not exist, to our knowledge. I mean, they've been lost uh, with history. There is newsreel footage, though, and Correct. that was unrelated to the TV broadcast. Correct. And that was broadcast, I'm, as far as I can tell, around the globe. I can't remember exactly where I'd heard it. It probably was in some editorial or news piece written somewhere that all the way over in places like Israel, this was being broadcast to people. Shocking that this can travel so quickly in and have such a global appeal and yet not shocking at all, I guess. So we hinted at it earlier in the conversation. I do want to now acknowledge David and Alice Fiscus who interacted with the media in the ways that we've described, but are also characters in and of themselves. If the rescue was hard on those that watched it and on the men who put their lives at risk to go underneath the ground and do all of this boring work, boring as in into the ground, then you can only imagine how difficult it must have been on the parents. We have described these scenes, tableaus, I guess you could have called them, of of Alice sitting in the car, just kind of watching, letting all pour over him, David uh, chain-smoking cigarettes and compulsively pacing around the ground. And even after this event finished, this was something that they were never, ever going to be able to get away from. Strangers were repeatedly recognizing them years after the fact for being the parents of this poor little girl. And even in years after when more children would be falling down wells, reporters would be repeatedly seeking Alice for comment. And I can't imagine how difficult this must be to never be able to forget. Do you have yeah. a sense of, of how Alice dealt with this unfortunate notoriety? And David, for that matter, as well.
1: Uh, I do, and I don't have a sense of how they dealt with it um, because, of course, they're gone. Um, but I have talked to their other daughter, Barbara. I would say Alice Fisk has dealt with this with a kind of solemn elegance and grace. I think she was sought out, as you say, either at the anniversary of the event every decade or so after there would be some kind of acknowledgement of the event, and Alice would be sought out for comment, etc. Or, as you say, when other children find themselves in harm's way, particularly under the earth, people would seek out Alice. And she always responded with grace. Um, and it must have been very, very hard. Part of the challenge is the kind of uniqueness of the of the surname. So it's If she was Alice Smith, she could have gone below the radar, but she's Alice Fiscus. It's an unusual surname. And so the commentary that she would receive from complete strangers when her surname became known, I think must have been very painful because people would say, oh, like the little girl. And Alice would say, yes, that's my daughter.
0: And she said, I think later in life, I believe in response to little Jessica McClure falling down the well, that this is something that she tried and tried and tried to forget, and yet it stayed with her all of these years. Uh, It's amazing that she should respond with such grace when the pain of having this continually brought up to her must have been very difficult to deal with. You do have a very insightful quote at one of the end of your chapters that seems in a way related to this, which is that whenever a child is endangered, Kathy Fiscus will be conjured up again. I guess it's sort of an open ended question, a question that's open to interpretation, but do you think that's a, a good thing?
1: <laughs> what a good question. Um, it's painful. Um, it's painful for me um, because I'm so attached to this event for strange reasons, I guess. Alice Fiscus repeatedly said that though she had lost her daughter she was convinced that any number of children and others had been saved by the example of this event which in its wake left behind a series of laws across the country if not further that were to protect people from events like this so laws that capped wells for instance or other water sources that were dangerous and so in in a seeking some kind of solace, Alice Fiskus went there and said, we lost our daughter, but other children have been saved. And I think that's true. Um, But how much solace that can provide at the end of a day or end of a lifetime,
0: I don't know. And one can only imagine the fervor in which this was accomplished, at least locally, because as you note, and as has been noted, David Fiscus was deeply involved in this well capping effort. He had a very involved role being, I'm gonna forget the exact title that he had, but he was sort of a a manager. He was in charge of keeping track of these wells, contemporaneously. Yes.
1: Yes, David Fiscus is what amounts to the district superintendent For the california water and telephone company which is in charge of the field and other sites but in charge of the field where a dozen or so wells existed one of which was the old johnson well behind the fiscus house that kathy falls into so it's a terrible irony that he knows that landscape well he knows that well and that's what captures his daughter
0: so we have the laws in the aftermath of it. We have the well capping carried out by David Fiskus, And of course, I can't let it go unsaid. This sort of heartwarming and tear jerking response that Alice had responding with grace is an understatement because she on multiple occasions just attempted to take this tragedy that was happening in her own personal life and attempt to make it better for other people around her. One of the moments that sticks in my mind is this reaction that she had to all of this outpouring of sympathy and love that she was receiving from all of these people. And she started receiving flowers or people talked about sending her flowers. And she released a statement saying, while I appreciate that concern for myself and my well being and wanting to send out that care, take the money that you would have sent on flowers and donate it to this children's hospital.
1: Yeah, the, 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 the outpouring is so astonishing. Money that rolls in for the rescuers and the rescue fund, and then letter after letter after thousands of letters sent to the Fiscus family. And it's the, it's that old way that people could do this, which is now, now kind of lost art, but people could write, uh, on their letter, the address could be the family of Kathy Fiscus, San Marino, California, and it would find its way to the home. So yes, I think the family was, um, just completely taken aback by the response from people.
0: And this outpouring of support, as you know, came from everywhere and anywhere, and people who couldn't or didn't direct these sympathies to the Fiscus family, directed them to the Los Angeles Times, there are a multitude of responses from people all around the world. And I think that in a way that is very encouraging, their responses mirror that in a way of Alice Fiscus of saying, let's not forget this tragedy that had happened and let's make it so that this never happens again and that we extend our empathy even further than we already have to all of the children around the world. It's as fascinating as it is just truly inspiring. So with that said, I'd like to bookend our conversation and ask you just one more question about memory. As we've already noted there are as many ways of remembering Kathy Fiscus seemingly as there are people to remember her. And I, in as much as I have looked into these memories, have been extremely encouraged by what I have seen in the sympathy, the empathy, the outpouring of support, as we've already noted. But asking you personally, as someone who has done all of this research and looked as much as one can possibly look almost into the tragedy. If you had a preference about what your readers would walk away with thinking about Kathy and the events, how would you like her to be remembered?
1: Um, that's a profound question that I don't know that I have an answer to. Uh, I think my answer would change year to year. I look upon the ways in which so many of those letters to the Fiscus family commented on either the pregnancy of the woman writing the letter or an expected pregnancy in the early years of the baby boom. And the fact that these women said, either I'm pregnant or if I become pregnant and if I have a little girl, I'm gonna name her Kathy. Just yesterday, a friend of mine said that his wife of 43 years was named for Kathy Fiscus and I had no idea. So the power of that, to change the ways in which Americans named their little girls in the early 1950s, is very profound to me, because it meant that in some way, these names given to these little girls were in memorialization of the one who was lost. And that's a very powerful thing to me. So I would like people to get that and think about that. At the same time, this is a very local history. And I want, as a historian, I want p- people to understand the cycles of history in that landscape, all the water below the earth, why that well was dug in the first place, what the indigenous community was all about prior to contact with the Spanish, what the Mexican period was about, what the growth of Southern California in the 20th century meant. So there are bits and pieces of that in there too, as context, which I, as an historian, again, I, I think is very important. So the, I think you're right, the, 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 the moral or the lesson or the teaching or the memory of what this event means is different for all kinds of people, for all kinds of reasons. And also memory is fallible. What mm-hmm. certain people remember about the event, other people have no, no sense of that because those are different memories than they have. So that's an important thing to keep in mind too, that one person's memory is no better, worse, or more accurate than another's usually.
0: You get the sense, I think, almost that Kathy Fiscus and her life and her death is a case study of all of the different ways in which history is interconnected, as you note, to the Spanish period, as well as the indigenous population in the area preceding the events and everything that comes thereafter. And I like you, am just profoundly touched by the number of people who were named for little Kathy and who in some way can feel connected to what happened, feel connected to the Fiscus family, to Alice Fiscus and even to little Kathy herself, even having never met her. And I I know that, Endings are not always this perfect, but I want to continue to keep that in mind as I had put it in in the end of my own episode. This is something that if it is not, these, these representations, these letters, if they're not a representation of what humanity is, then they are a representation of what we could be in a more unified way. With that, I think uh, that covers all of the things that I wanted to talk about today. As I mentioned, Kathy Fiscus, A Tragedy That Transfix the Nation is available for purchase wherever you can get your books. Uh, I so sincerely appreciate your time today, Professor. Thank you for joining me and I hope you take care.
1: Thank you so much, I enjoyed it very much.
0: All right, thank you. That's all for now, everyone. A giant thanks once again to Professor William Deverell for offering his time and insights to this episode. If you're interested in learning more about Kathy, please consider purchasing a copy of his latest book. And if you enjoy our work here on the podcast, there are many ways to support us. You can follow us on social media at 20minhistory, review us on Apple Podcasts, or even make a monetary contribution on Patreon or ACAST. Find the links for all that and more in the episode notes. As always, I've been David A. Bradbury. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.